So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with a brand new strand on the podcast feed that we're calling Playback. On the last Friday of every month, we're going to bring you an oldie but a goodie. A replay of one of our middle features that you may not have heard before, but we think is worth your time. Because I've now had over 130 conversations on this podcast with amazing people and have heard some really prescient stories from them about the modern world. So we just wanted to take the chance to spotlight some of the best ones from our archive to give you another chance to hear them. And what we're going to try and do with this series is each month we're going to thematically pair our playback episode with our middle feature you've just heard. So in January 2024, as you'll know if you've heard our latest episode, I've been speaking to Jane and Matthew who set up Veganuary. And their stories of servers crashing and midnight binges on Google Analytics and their general startup journey reminded us of our episode from February 2017, CEO at 22. As you'll hear, back then, references to Facebook, Fast Company and TechCrunch might have felt a little bit more relevant. But the central thrust of what we're discussing here, the pressures of startup culture on a young CEO, seems as relevant as ever. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, it only takes a glance at the podcast charts to see there are more wannabe entrepreneurs out there than actual entrepreneurs. There are myriad startup gurus willing to give you advice on social media, in YouTube pre-rolls, and yes, in your ears, each basically preaching that if you're devoted to your idea, if you get up at 5am every day, if you're self-motivated, then you too could become a disruptor and perhaps a millionaire. But what does this culture, particularly targeted at go-getting young men, do to our mental health? One man who knows is James Routledge, who, when I went to meet him in a trendy open-plan office in Shoreditch, HQ for his then startup Sanctus, told me about the circuitous route he'd taken to get there. I never grew up wanting to start my own business. 
I never really knew what I wanted to do until I went to university in Sheffield and and then I sort of fell into entrepreneurship through meeting George and he was like very entrepreneurial like much more of a classic entrepreneur you know he, he was selling watches at university he just like he had that thirst for sort of ideas and and was you know more of a classic sort of entrepreneur on paper I think three days later me and him are like sitting in our flat together at you know in halls and scheming about what business we would start and what were the ideas um, that fell by the wayside <laughs> we had first started off with the classic idea that every single student has which is an app to help you find tickets to nightclubs uh-huh. so something to do with going out because that's like the only problem you have and the only thing you do so that's like <laughs> that was the first thing uh, that was called that was called night finder and then we had another one I can't remember the name. It was like student starts or something like that. And that was about, you know, you have those people in lectures or in your class or whatever that are really diligent, you know, really hard working. They write up all the notes. They do all the revision. They write these great mass, you know, really highlighted pages of revision and whatnot. Yeah, the people who are actually doing their degrees yeah, the people properly who are actually doing their degrees planning properly. business ideas. Yeah, yeah so we were going to see if those people would <laughs> give their notes to us and we could sell them to everyone else. So like selling other people's notes. So so plagiarism. Yeah. (laughs) Voluntary plagiarism. Yeah, yeah. Then we dropped onto the one we actually ran with, which was called Match Chat. For some reason, we thought it was a problem that it was hard to talk about football online. (laughs) Or there was no one destination to talk about the match. So obviously, looking back, that there really is. You know, there's thousands and thousands of football blogs. You've obviously got Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever, where people talk about football all day long. But we we decided there wasn't this one central destination to have a conversation around the match. This app or this website would pull in all the statistics around the game, the score, who'd scored. We would pull in all the, the social feeds and tweets and the Facebook comments centralize it around the game okay but you did i guess go looking for a problem you could provide a solution for we did yeah and that was yeah. the best you could come up with at the time yeah probably, we just probably was the best out of the nightclub idea yeah pro- probably probably i mean we were just like you said because we were just looking for something i was so bored at uni i had this thirst to like do something and the six hours contact i had for history and politics wasn't I wasn't getting my fix, basically. So we searched for a problem to solve and a business to start, which I know now is is not really the right way to start a business. You know, you, you want to have a, a passion or a a problem that's a real pain for you for you personally that you then go on to solve. But we we didn't have that. We just wanted to start something, and Match Chat was the thing. You okay, know, that so was the first thing that got there. How did you go about doing that? We did the social network thing and, and met a couple of guys from the computer science department who ended up founding the business with us, Stefan and Nabil. And then myself and George just made it our mission, I suppose, to like shout about what we were doing as much as possible and also to the tune of, of raising investment so we could actually take time out to build it and grow this this huge business that we were going to start. The selling bit, I get, because yeah. it's relatively easy to put together a press release or put a thing on Facebook saying we're doing this thing, yeah. even when you're 21. Yeah. The investment bit, that takes a certain amount of cockiness, doesn't it, to approach a kind of, I guess, grown-up and say, give us some of your money. I think, I think it was naivety more than sort of arrogance or an ignorance to, to our part. We 
I think because we were so young, we we didn't know how it was supposed to be done. So we just we just fell into it as well. I think it was just about the time in 2012 where the startup ecosystem was just starting to move and people in the UK were starting to get excited about how they could invest in the next Facebook or the next Uber. So, Did you actually need any money to build it at this stage? Because Probably not. No. no, absolutely not. Looking, you've got IT students at Sheffield yeah, University look, building looking, it for you for looking free. Looking back with hindsight, you know, I would, <laughs> it's not like we spent any money. I had a part-time job at a tapas restaurant. I would have kept that. And then in a spare time, built this little side project, stayed at university, done my six hours a week at, at uni, and just just kept doing it on the side, as opposed to going raising money and dropping out of university and, and going all out, which is which is what we did. So talk me through what those meetings with angel investors were like. You, you come down oh, on the train was, from Sheffield to London, presumably mostly. So n- well, no, actually, I, I remember we did this first pitch at the Yorkshire Association of Business Angels, which now just seems hilarious. You know, it's basically a load of old car dealers and a load of sort of like steel manufacturers who we were pitching to. And we were like the youngest there by by an absolute mile. I mean, I remember we met this guy who had this like canal boat business and he was going to put us in touch to his mate who like had just sold some like, yeah, like some manufacturing warehouse or something like that. You know, proper old school bricks and mortar guys. No disrespect to them, but they absolutely didn't understand anything about technology. We were just on top of the world because we just thought it was amazing. You know, we were pitching. We felt like we were on Dragon's Den. It was all new to us. It was so exciting. And you were the vanguard. You were the internet to those people. They probably thought that we could build the next Facebook because they, they knew so little about technology. But fortunately, actually, we ended up meeting a guy called Lee Strafford, Sheffield-based, and he'd actually sold an internet business, Plusnet Broadband, to BT. And he'd also gone on to be the chairman of Sheffield Wednesday. It's also a pretty interesting guy and had this football angle. So we went to meet him and managed to get a meeting with him somehow just through like a cold email or something. We ended up going to his house in this like in the country, gorgeous house with an amazing view. And he pretty much gave us like, and I'll never forget it to this day, like the birds and the bees chat of how to start a tech business and we pretty much followed his blueprint exactly he said firstly well done because you found me and then he said you found yourself some techies and some engineers you're going to get yourself onto an accelerator program they're going to give you your first little bit of cash to see if you can build something that anyone else will invest in then you'll raise a little bit more investment from like a vc a bigger fund and then you'll go from there and he was like you're probably going to be startup founders or entrepreneurs for the rest of your life now and he just said that to us and we were sitting we were just came out and we were just pumped we were just like, oh my god we finally met someone who gets it who's who's actually in touch with the tech ecosystem and understands how this works then we basically ended up getting our first fifteen thousand pounds but then you went looking for notably larger money from investors you raised over a million dollars in total we literally just fell into it we just pitched this like big vision for some products for the future with a lot of energy and a lot of passion and some people ended up giving us some money you know that that is literally how it was was it easy yeah is that because you're good or is it because there's a lot of money floating around a lot of money floating around yeah a lot of money floating around you know i'd like to think we presented well but the business was fundamentally flawed we weren't solving a real problem there was no business model there 
when we came down to London and we spoke to like real serious angel investors who'd like built and sold their own business, you know, they cut through it straight away and they were like, you haven't got a product here. You haven't, you know, haven't got a business. However, we managed to raise money from from people who didn't quite get that. So you are CEO of a tech company yeah. at 22 years old. You moved to Newcastle. Yeah. And you then, once you've raised the money, yeah. have to run the business. Yeah. How did that go? We basically ended up pivoting, which is a wanky tech term for we changed our, our whole idea because the other one didn't work. Um, <laughs> what did you pivot to? So obviously our initial idea was let's let's create this app to get people to talk about football. Our second ingenious uh, idea was let's create a little bit of software which helps people talk about football and put it where they already are. So obviously there's thousands and thousands of like independent football blogs and websites for like Newcastle United or Leeds FC or the Mag or whatever it might be. Let's give them match chat, which will help their community talk more. Okay, so kind of discuss, but for it was li- it was literally discuss. It wasn't as good as discuss, <laughs> but then you could add your favourite football team. I think we had like a couple of hundred football sites using it at one point. It's like fifty million page views a month, so really like quite a big scale. So that was ex- that added to the ego as well because that was quite exciting. That's that was another like, big oh, number, isn't it? That's another big number to stick on your LinkedIn profile. And we were making nice graphs and sending nice investor updates, which which looks like they were going up and to the right. So again, that added to the buzz of the hot young tech guys who are really energetic and really passionate. Now they've got this graph that's going up and to the right. Things are happening. And we did manage to create some hype around ourselves for a certain amount of time. But no money, I'm guessing? I mean, making a little, Making a little bit of money, like a little bit of ad revenue. But not Just, profit? No, God, no. no. Absolutely not, no. How Jesus. many people were you employing? At our peak, we had like six full-time staff and a couple of like consultants. I remember for a period we were burning like, I think we were burning like 25, 30K a month, which was just insane. Now we were paying these consultants like so much money. I don't even know what they were doing. Yeah. How did you end up in that situation? The problem with having investors that don't fully understand the space is then they then give you bad advice and you listen to them because you don't fully understand the space. So it's just like this self-fulfilling prophecy, let's call it dumb money, then dumb advice and then dumb strategy, which is pretty much what we did. So we ended up getting in some advisors who, again, followed the same suit as our investors and the other people around us, no tech backgrounds, more of a corporate background, didn't get tech, never started an early stage company, but for some reason we thought at the time that they were the right people to to give us advice. About two years in, we were about to raise a little bit more money to keep us going. How much money were you at at this point? So we'd already raised about 300K and we were gonna raise another 250 to give us another like year, 18 months to kind of figure it out. George was going to leave the business as well. You know, he'd sensed that it wasn't going in the right direction. He wanted to leave. I was a little bit more like, you know, I felt a bit more like the captain of the ship sort of thing. I wanted to, to either go down with it or, you know, or give it one last shot. But I remember having a conversation with this, the non-exec, a real crossroads of like whether we should take this last bit of money and whether it was right or not. And deep down, I think I knew that it wasn't. But I remember he pretty much told me that I, I didn't want to stop. He was like, you don't want to stop. I know what you're like. You want to keep going. 
which is pretty awful advice. You should never really say that to anyone. You should ask them. You should say, you know, what do you want to do? But unfortunately, because he was incentivized by sort of having shares in the business as opposed to being incentivized for my well-being or my welfare or for me as an individual, then I, was, I listened to him and we just carried on. Modern Man Playback continues after this. For the whole three years of doing the business, we presented a persona and a facade of who we thought we should be. We acted how we thought we should act. And should was defined by the blogs we would read, you know, the TechCrunch articles we would read. And there is an absolute saturation of that in the market. Oh, I mean, it's it? just regurgitated crap. Like, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same knowledge just getting repackaged. So what's an example of, I guess, a kind of mentor myth that you see repackaged on, mm. on TechCrunch, on Fast Company, on those kind of websites that say, this is how you should behave as a CEO that actually you think is I think it's that, it's that classic sort of hustle mentality of you know 18 hour days no sleep sell 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 pitch 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 you have to work insanely long hours and everything's a rush and you have to move fast and you have to hustle hard and sell in the the tech startup ecosystem in particular that that culture's dangerous and that success is complete dedication to your cause yeah you know it's not an overnight success you have to work for five years hard graft and you can't have a relationship you can't have a family you have to be solely committed to your your business what did your family make of what you were doing my parents well they always did a fantastic job of supporting me never said you know don't do that don't do this they just supported me you know i think if i said i want to leave you need to be a bin man i think they would have supported me to be honest which is which is amazing but they always did they understand me. it i don't think they understood the business and what i was doing did you share with them that you thought it was a doomed business plan and no, that it was built on air. <laughs> no, no, I didn't share with anyone that that I thought it was doomed. Really, I mean, because I just kept up the the front of things are going great. So I didn't share with anyone, not even family, friends, anyone, like literally anyone. So you've got this double life going on. You've got consultants who you're paying to give you advice, but you can't be honest with them about how you actually feel about it. Yeah, the way I actually see—it's funny you say double life. When I look back on this period now. I almost see that I had two, like a personality split. I almost had this this front who was trying to be the founder and CEO of this technology company, raising investment. And then there was the real me that was inside, very isolated, very alone, worried about what the future held, a little bit lost, confused. So yeah, very much had a double life going on. So what did happen in the end? We took that money and there was four of us left in the business at this point. All moved down to London and said, right, let's really give this one last shot, pretty much. And that's, you know, we really worked hard for six months. You know, we really went at it. We released loads of great products that were well built, but it got about six months in and nothing had moved. So we went to Brighton for the weekends and just probably for the first time in a long time, just you know, really sort of reflected on where we were, what we wanted. But when we came back, my head was a lot clearer. 
and it just clicked for me that it was all wrong I'd finally just had that moment of like James what the fuck are you doing within two months we, we were making moves to, to liquidate the company so within a month after having that sort of moment of euphoria I would moved out of London I was living back with my parents I was doing the odd Skype call in the day with our investors to sort out the liquidation process and, and selling off the assets and and that was it I was sitting on the sofa heart just pounding just beating through my chest felt very on edge fidgety couldn't sit still you know palms very sweaty felt sick turns out that that was that was anxiety is this is this sale gonna happen how are we gonna do the liquidation are people gonna hate me i'm a failure what do i do now all this all this stuff i'm living at home again all, what am i gonna do next all this stuff going through my head so i remember at that point i couldn't really not share with my mum and my parents in particular how i felt i remember saying you know mum i feel weird my heart feels like it's pounding. I remember getting my mum to check my pulse. I was like, is my, because she's a nurse. She was like, yeah, it's fine. It's like, it feels like it's beating through my chest. She was like, you're probably stressed. I was like, yeah, I think I am. But then I would say like, no, I'm not though. I'm fine. This is, this is, you know, this is the right decision for the business. This is good. You know, I would always put this still, still selling everything almost, still putting a spin on everything. I was in particularly very stressed out about the, the the conversations I was needing to have with with our investors. Not six months ago had we told them that we wanted to raise money and six months later we were wanting to give it them back. And it got to the point where I was having panic attacks. So I'd wake up in the middle of the night, heart pounding, sweating. I remember even just Googling my symptoms, sweaty palms, dry mouth, not stomach, panic attacks. I'm Googling that symptoms. And, you know, when you Google these things, a lot of like mental health charities crop up on, on, on Google paid search. And so I remember looking into counseling and therapy, still not, not told anyone around me. I remember looking to go and see a therapist and just being like, I don't understand why I would pay 60 quid to talk to someone for an hour. It doesn't, I don't get it. And it, their site was rank. Like it was like some WordPress dot Wix site or something, you know, that was done in like Times New Roman. I was like, I don't want to go and speak to like, this person. <laughs> That's such a millennial way to decide. I was, to get yeah, I was just like, I was like, I can't go and speak to that. It just doesn't feel right. Because you hear a lot, don't you? People say, oh, mental health is stigmatized. And I mm. kind of think, is it really? Because you hear so much about it these days. People yeah. are much more open about mental health. And yet what you're describing is okay it might be easier to diagnose yeah but you still feel like you're ill you still feel I, like you need I to don't, be treated I don't think what I've just described is the stigma on mental health I think what I've just described is a complete lack of awareness and understanding and education on what mental health actually is I didn't know what was going on in my own head or in my own body if I get a cold and I start to get a blocked nose and a sore throat I know that that's a cold so I go to the shop and I buy some paracetamol and two litres of orange juice and I rest and I, I feel better eventually. If I start to feel anxious and I get sweaty palms and a knot in my stomach and a dry mouth and I just feel shit, I ain't got a clue what to do. I didn't know what was going on. I meant more that if a lot of mental health charities come up, yeah. there's a feeling that there's something wrong with you rather yes. than yeah, yeah, exactly. this so is a normal thing to happen. I didn't want to make, I didn't want to accept internally in my own head that I was struggling with anxiety or suffering from anxiety because I didn't want to admit that I was suffering and I didn't want to admit that I had a problem or that I was ill or that I was weak. I don't want to say that about myself. 
I'm not, that's not me. I'm not that kind of person. I don't want to do that. So when I am seeing like charities and, you know, people talking about illness and all this dark, negative, scary stuff, I don't want to admit that and go down that path because then I'm going to think that I'm ill and I don't want to be ill. And basically, I suppose this is a bit of an entrepreneurial trait of a, an all or nothing. I then went from speaking to absolutely nobody to then being Mr. Open, Mr. Authentic and Mr. Vulnerable. In 2016, my New Year's resolution was to be more open. So I pretty much went on this rampage of openness and was like, right, I'm going to just tell everyone <laughs> like how I'm feeling or how I've been feeling. And I'm going to tell everyone my story. You wrote a blog post, didn't you? I did. So that culminated in February last year of me writing a blog post called Mental Health and Startups. It felt like I was coming out. That's how it felt as as someone who had mental health. Yeah. And that's how that blog post felt. And it was, you know, it was, I'm really proud of that piece. Like it was real raw. It was, it was, I think it was well, well written. It's very honest. I read it this it morning. Was, it was very from the heart. What was the reaction from the tech community? Insane. Absolutely insane. My phone was going off for three, for a week straight. Got 500 emails off the back of that post from people I'd never met before. I felt like I touched a nerve massively. And I felt like I touched on a real big problem, which basically was this perception of mental health was the fact that nobody wants to talk about mental health because it's perceived as weak. And finally, you had a problem you were passionate about that needed a solution. Absolutely, and I had found a, not just a problem that I'm really passionate about, that I'd felt personally, you know, in, in my heart, but a big problem, like a real problem that, that had meaning and gravitas to it, you know, that felt like it was actually going to make a difference, which was everything I'd been searching for. And ultimately, this experience is what then led to your current project. So we're sitting at the moment in the headquarters of your new startup, yes, uh, which is called Sanctus. You're still working with George. Oh, yeah, I am, yeah. You're wearing the branded sweatshirt as we speak. Always, yeah. Tell us about that. So I never set out to start a business, genuinely. I honestly mean that, you know, hand on heart. I do mean that. I set out on this sort of one-man crusade initially to change the perception of mental health from negative to positive with a big vision that one day we might go to a, a mental health gym just like we would go to a physical gym so we would train and treat our mental health just like we do our physical health so one day i just had this vision that was just like right i want to put a mental health gym on the high street a place where we receive coaching we do meditation we do workshops on our mental health, just like we would go to the gym and lift weights to get bigger biceps or get a six-pack. A place that doesn't feel like you're seeing a therapist or a charity. Absolutely not. A place that feels, again, a place that you're proud to go. It feels normal. It feels relatable. It feels accessible. You know, you feel strong from going there. You don't feel weak. It's empowering. It's liberating. And whilst you're building up momentum, you've been doing some mentoring yourself. When you talk to people who remind you of you, yeah, what's the one thing you really, really want to get into their heads? Oh, good question. I don't, I don't know what to do or what to say when you see someone going down a path that you think that they shouldn't go down. Because unfortunately, I think humans learn best when they get hurt. And I think for me, I don't know, but my guess is that if two years ago you'd have sat me down and you said, James, this is going to happen, you're going to burn out, you're not working on the right thing, you're not passionate about this, 
I don't think I'd have listened to you. And I think I needed I think I needed to learn. I think I needed to go through that pain myself to learn. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people do. Um hopefully if by talking about mental health more and making it more mainstream and making it a bigger part of the conversation, you will prevent people from having to get hurt. Because it will be more widely publicised and be more talked about. And that will relate to the people who are starting businesses like myself. Um, so hopefully by the conversation being more mainstream, you will stop uh, people just burning out like I did. It's very hard for me to look someone in the eye and say, you're wrong. And the way you're living your life is not right. That's that People don't respond very well to that. They just get defensive. No, it's just giving them an environment where they can come to that realisation themselves. Absolutely. Which is what Sanctus is trying to do. James Routledge. Since our interview, the company that he founded, Sanctus, has raised £4.25 million in investment that was in 2022 and seems to have pivoted again from the mental health gym idea that we were talking about there to a more corporate-focused strategy. They now have mental health coaching partnerships for employee well-being and they've worked with companies including Octopus Energy and Red Bull. James, meanwhile, has kept up the writing. Uh, He's got a book out, Mental Health at Work, which has been published by Penguin. And now he's writing his first novel, which he describes as Bridget Jones's Diary for Men. He says also, by the way, he is on a mission to regenerate Stoke and Staffordshire, where he grew up. Sounds like a future episode, frankly. Uh, You can find out more about him on his website, jamesroutledge.com. Uh, But that's it from us. If you have a suggestion of a favourite interview from the past that you'd like us to replay in the future, drop us a line via our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. You can fill out the feedback form there. And whilst you're on our website, you can also browse all our back catalogue and, crucially, support the show financially. Thank you. I've been Ollie Mann with producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with a brand new episode on February the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.